Good morning. To welcome you uh, into Redwood on a beautiful uh, Cinco de Mayo Sunday morning. Or Revenge of the Fifth. Had yesterday fallen today, if today would have been uh, May the 4th, I would be up here in a Star Wars t-shirt preaching. So kind of go along with the, the Hawaiian shirt I'd have on my Welcome to Tatooine t-shirt up here. But uh, it's not, so I'm not. So uh, you guys don't get that shirt today. I got a question for you as we, we uh, get ready to start this morning. How many of you have, have been just kind of cruising through life? Specifically, I'm thinking in terms of like maybe marriage or parenting. You're just kind of cruising through it. Maybe there's some hard times, maybe there's some easy times, you know, that, that comes with life. But you hit a spot in, in, in marriage or parenting with your spouse or with your kids, and you're just kind of like stopped in your tracks, you're like, what? Like, wait a minute, what? what? You know, like, like parenting, for example, I mean, yeah, there are some days that are easier than others. Parents, you kind of know what I mean. There's some days it's just your, your kids are just tough, and it's hard to deal with them, and some days it's just easy. And then some days they say something to you, and you're like, What? Like, I, I don't, hold on, I don't understand who you are right now. Maybe marriage can be similar, like, you, you know, you and your spouse, it's suddenly like you're speaking different languages. You've been around each other for years, and suddenly you're just like, okay, I don't know who you are right now. You're different than you were this morning. You know, did you get mixed up with somebody at work? I mean, I, I'm, you're just kind of cruising along, and it's like suddenly it's like, oh, this is a really confusing few hours for me. As my kids get older, they start saying things that just stop me in my tracks. And I'm just like, wait a minute, I don't, say that again. Okay, now say that another time. It's like on the show The Office where he's like, okay, I want you to explain that to me like you would a 10-year-old. He tells him something in accounting terms and, and, and Michael Scott, the manager, doesn't get it. So he goes, explain that to me like you would a 10-year-old. So he explains it to him again. Okay, now explain it to me like you would a four-year-old. It's like he just doesn't quite get it, and he needs it to be broken down more and more and more. Sometimes we get to sections of the Bible that are kind of similar, and we read them, and we're like, okay, wait a minute. Would you step back and tell that to me maybe in, in a different translation? Because I didn't quite catch that the first time. But today we're in Romans chapter 7, if, if you want to get there in your Bibles or on your devices, because this is a section that can kind of fall into that similar feel. Uh, we, we can read this, and you read it, and you're like, wait a minute, what in the world did Paul just write? <clears throat> like, what in the world did, did I just read? You step back, and you read it again. You're like, okay, I still didn't quite get it. It's one of these you have to read over and over and over. See, some sections of the Bible are, are hard to understand, even just on the surface level. Forget digging deep. They're just hard to, to read the, page, uh, the words on your page here. But Romans 7 is kind of one of those. Kind of set up where we're at today. If, if you've missed any part of this series, we're, we're continuing our, our series through Romans. We're more than halfway through it now. We've made it this far, so I think we'll finish. But we, we've worked our way through to this point, and the overall theme has been this. We have a really bad problem with sin, far worse than we understand. God gave us a, a solution that is far greater than we could understand. And our response to that is that we are saved through the grace of Jesus. We just simply have to believe in it. And because of that, because we are saved through that, our natural response should be to move closer to God. That's kind of the gist of what we've talked about uh, through, through six chapters of Romans up to this point. So we get into Romans chapter 7 today, and it can be difficult to understand because if you read this on a surface level, and you don't dig deep, and, and you don't uh, kind of look your way through Scripture and see what the whole narrative has been, it looks like Paul's starting to talk himself in a circle. Like he's saying something that goes against what he just said. 
In, in other words, what he's telling us specifically here is he's told us up to this point, specifically in chapter 6, that we are free from the law. The, the law was a thing of the past. We don't have to worry about the law anymore. And now we get into chapter 7, and then suddenly it sounds like he's defending the law. Well, here's the spoiler alert. He is. He just told us we don't need it. He's kind of uh, explained why the law can be bad, and now he's defending it. And, it, and if you were, uh, you know, a skeptic, you would look at this and go, well, this is contradictory. The Bible contradicts itself. I'm not paying attention to what it says, because that's what skeptics do. They highlight two things that don't necessarily agree, and they say, well, these, these contradict each other. But, you know, again, that, that, that's taking the easy way out. We always look a little deeper. We kind of dig in, and we see what's said around it. We see how it fits. We see what's really meant there, and we realize it's not contradictory, It's saying things from two different perspectives. In this case, he's not contradicting himself. He's finishing his thought. He kind of led up to this about how it's not as as necessary as we might have thought, yet it still is necessary. And so that's kind of what we're going to look at today. And if you are unfamiliar with how Paul writes, or if you're unfamiliar with with the Bible in general, uh, you may read all this today and hear all this and you go, man, this is really hard to understand, heavy thick topic. That's because it is. This is a hard to understand, heavy, thick couple of pages in the Bible. Some pages are heavier than others. Doesn't mean that pages are more important than others, but some pages are heavier than others. This one isn't heavy like, oh man, this is just this big burdensome weight. It's just, what do we do with it? So we're going to look at Romans 7 today. We're going to spill into chapter 8 just a little bit and kind of break this down. And I'm going to kind of give you a little bit of a of a, of a bird's eye look at this, and we're going to dive bomb into this, is because this is just a, it's, it's interesting the way it's written. It's not written like a lot of the rest of Romans. It's not written like a lot of what Paul writes. He takes a very different approach here, and we're going to kind of look at this. But let's step back just a little bit, because again, to get a better idea of what he's saying, you have to see what he just said. So last week, Trevor in chapter 6 talked about how we are no longer slaves to the law. Instead, we are slaves to righteousness. Uh, and, and what he kind of emphasized through that is that when the law existed, that the Jews were slaves to it. And what the law was intended to do was to protect their walk with God, to protect their ability to become more righteous. They were uh, required to follow the law because of this, but over time they elevated the importance of the law above their walk with God. And protecting the law became more important to them. These Pharisees we read about in the Gospels, these Pharisees that we uh, want to kind of make out to be the enemies, they were trying to do the right thing. They were just going about it the wrong way. So they weren't just like the bad guys. Like this is what they were, to, to them Jesus was the bad guy because he was going against what they knew they were supposed to do. They had elevated the importance of the law over what the law was there to protect. And what Paul is saying is you Christians, those of you who used to be Jews, you need to let go of the law and start to follow Christ. And that's where the the confusion came in. And in particular, he says, don't be a slave to the law, go be a slave to righteousness. Now, I think it's hard for us sometimes to say that phrase, slave of righteousness, slave to the law. Why? Because we hear slave and we automatically bring up all the negative thoughts of what slavery means. I'm sure most of you were like me when you went to an American history class and you heard the word slavery. It meant one thing. Our first 100 years of our nation's history. And you automatically went back to when people of a certain color were oppressed and, and punished and, and treated harshly, treated very horribly. 
And that's what we think of when we think of slavery. Or maybe now you've, you've kind of moved past that. Now you're thinking to modern day slavery. Maybe like the sex trade. Where children and women and sometimes men are kidnapped and taken to places and unimaginable, unthinkable things are done to them. Maybe that's where you go. But either way, that, that's where our mind goes, is to more of like an oppression of just a, a flat-out abuse type of, of mindset. That's not really what this is all about. Those are forms of slavery, yes. But when we talk about slavery, specifically when Paul talks about being a slave to righteousness, we have to remember what the word slave means. Slave is simply a possession, someone who is owned or possessed by another, or the possession of another, sorry. So it's not necessarily automatically meaning oppression, just somebody who has bought and paid for somebody else. So when we read about in Romans 6, we were slaves to sin. Why? Because we gave ourselves to sin. Go back to Genesis, the fall of man. We pushed away from God and we gave ourselves to sin. Therefore, sin owned us. But we've read about through Romans, specifically in chapter 3, Jesus came and justified us, redeemed us. Remember, redemption has to do with freedom from slavery. Jesus bought us with his blood. So now we are his possession. We are slaves to Christ. And we talk about being slaves to Christ. Does anybody ever think and, and go, man, I'm just being oppressed by Jesus right now? No, we're owned by him. That's a good thing. It's a very good thing. So when we talk about being a slave to righteousness, a slave to Jesus, you automatically have to scrub from your mind the negative thoughts around the word slave. And I hesitated and thought about using a different phrase there, using a different word in place there. Because we want to kind of eliminate any negative connotation. But I kind of want to redeem that word because of that. Because to me, that's how powerful it is to follow Jesus. See, here's the thing. We go back a step here. Paul tells us in, in, in Romans 6, uh, it ends with, with this verse in verse 23. We were slaves to sin, and he says the wages of sin is death. Because I sinned, because I gave myself to sin, I deserve death. But again, we were freed how? He says this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He bought us with his blood, and in response to that, our natural move should be to obey him and to follow him. That's our natural move. That's kind of what Paul has been saying through these last couple of chapters. Uh, becoming more like Jesus means letting go of more of what the world tells you you should do. More of how the world tells you you should think and feel. You should strive to obey God by following where his spirit leads you. But you have to do this willingly. And as we get into Romans 7 today, Paul's going to use a very interesting illustration. These first few verses, I'm just going to kind of summarize them a little bit. Because Paul uses the illustration of marriage. And think about marriage. What makes marriage healthy? What makes, makes a marriage successful long-term? Requires submission from both partners. Willingly. Not forced, but willing. Uh, I like how, how Paul talks about it in Ephesians. Uh, guys, we like to pull out that verse where it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands. Of course, we erase the last part where it says, as Christ uh, you know, submitted himself. We erase that. But as you read on, in that passage, what's Paul say? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission has to be willing. You, you can force it all you want. At some point, it has to be willing. 
So for me, I'd rather jump on out and do it ahead of time instead of being just bullied into it. So if I willingly submit to Christ, I am, am giving up my right to make my own decisions. I'm giving up my right to be in control because I recognize that when I'm in control, things don't typically go well for me. When I let God call the shots, though, things tend to go a lot better. Things tend to be a lot healthier uh, for me. Uh, With our marriage with Jennifer and I, ours is not a marriage of she fully 100% submits to me and I 100% fully uh, submit to her. It's mutual. Yes, we both fully submit to each other, but it's not one of us lording over the other. There are times where one of us has to submit more than the other, but we're both willing to do that. See, Paul tells us in these first few verses here that that a wife whose husband has died is free to marry another, but a wife whose husband is still alive is not free to marry another. Okay, we kind of look at this in, in terms of what we talked about a few weeks ago with baptism. When we are baptized, we are dying to our old ways, so we're free to follow the Spirit. We're letting go of what the world has told us we should be doing, so we're free to follow the Spirit, but it has to be willing. You can't just go grab somebody and go dunk them. You're good. Carry on. I think they call that assault these days. But here's why that's important. Look in verse 5 of chapter 7. Paul says, For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we now serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here's kind of where this gets confusing, and there's going to be a big section to follow this that can seem very confusing. Paul is telling us that we aren't bound by the written code anymore. We are bound to the Spirit. We have died to our old ways. We have let go of that. And as we read through this, it's, it, it can sound like, like Paul has blamed the law for the natural uh, sinful life that we fall into, but that's not what he's going to do here. Paul is not going to claim the law is bad. Rather, he's going to say the law was intended to show us what was bad, to show us what was wrong. In other words, I think this, Paul's theme here is this, The law was not our problem, sin is. The law was never our problem. We could could probably rephrase this for what it means today to follow Christ. Rules are not our problem, sin is. Sin is. The law was in place to kind of show us how to navigate this. So here's kind of what I want to do because this is an interesting passage. I'm going to read through this. I don't don't have slides for this whole thing. I'm going to read through this in the NIV. If you've got a device and you want to follow in, 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 on your device, I'm in the NIV. But I'm going to read through this passage, and you can, you can uh, follow along with me here. Romans chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but then the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. 
So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might utterly become sinful. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do, uh, and if, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, I no longer live. It is no longer I myself. Uh, let me start this again, verse 17. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not, uh, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Verse 21. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work in me. What a wretched man I am. That's pretty easy and clear to understand, right? I read this I don't know how many times this week, and I still stumbled my way through it. If you pay attention to the grammar, Paul does something interesting here. Because those first few verses, he's kind of there in third person, you know, telling you how to do things like he has been kind of throughout this. He might say, I, but by and large, he's saying, you, you this, you that. And in verse 7, all the way through 24, he shifts into this first person narrative. It is not I who do these things. I want to do this. I want to do that. I struggle with this. I struggle with that. And it is very clear he's speaking from his own, again, first person point of view here. But here's kind of the thing. If you know where Paul's at in his journey, and he's about halfway through his ministry at this point, maybe a little more than halfway through, he's quite a ways through his walk with Jesus. If you know that, and if you read his other writings from around this time, Paul's not at a spot where he's struggling. He's not at a spot where he himself is struggling with sin. He knows what he's supposed to do, and he's doing it. And so scholars have kind of looked at this and go, okay, who is Paul talking to then? Who's he talking about? He's obviously taking somebody's place. He's using himself kind of as an example. But who's he talking about? And, and for a long time, there's kind of been two uh, main ideas of, of who Paul could be talking about here. First, he's talking about maybe the unsaved person who is starting to struggle and, and come to grips with this idea that I can't do this on my own anymore and I'm doing what I don't want to do. The second thought is maybe he's talking in, in terms of a, a saved person somebody who has accepted Christ, and they're struggling with sin still. And they're saying, despite my best efforts, I'm, I'm still struggling here. I'm still sinning. Last several years, there's kind of been a third possibility pop up, and I kind of like it. A lot of scholars are kind of leaning this direction, not to say that's me, but I, I kind of like this a little bit, but that Paul is, is, is writing from the perspective of Israel as a whole, and we could say kind of as a perspective of the church as a whole. In other words, he's saying to them, we are Jews, we are Christians, we're good to go, but yet we still catch ourselves struggling a little bit. And what I don't want to do, I'm doing. And what I do want to do, I can't do. That's, that's kind of where Paul's coming from. And it, without showing me your hands, I wonder how many of you would say, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's me today. 
What I really want to do, I don't do. And I don't know why, I just don't. And what I don't want to do, I still do. I still struggle with it a little bit. In other words, ask yourself this question. If you're taking notes, you can write down an answer to this question yourself here. Have you ever tried your best to follow Jesus and you still realize it's not good enough? I mean, I'm I'm not going to speak for everybody here. I can absolutely answer yes. And I can answer yes to this question a whole lot more often than I really wish I was answering yes to this question. I'm trying my best to follow Jesus. I'm trying my best to do what he did. Not to ask the question, what would Jesus do? But to ask the question, what did Jesus do? And I still look up and go, man, I am so far away from him right now. Like, what in the world is happening? I think that's where Paul's coming from here. And I think he's taking on the perspective of the person who is struggling to say this to us. As, as, as a former coach, I kind of relate to this a little bit because I'm a visual learner. You can tell me everything you want to tell me. I have to watch you do it, and then I learn. And, and I coach kind of that similar way. When I was coaching soccer, I could tell my girls how to approach the ball, how to strike the ball. Eventually, I'd get there and show them how to do it. That's not because I want to show off like how great I am. It's because I feel like I can teach them by showing them. Uh, our girls are playing baseball. Elsie's learning how to bat, and she's, she's you know, going through all of that. And at, at some point, we finally just go, look, Elsie, here's what you do. Let, let me see your bat. And I'll, I'll turn around left-handed so she can mirror me. I said, you know, stand there, hold your back elbow up, lean back, you know, walk through it with her so she can see it. I'm putting myself there. I don't need to learn how to hit anymore. Nobody's calling me, asking me to come join their team, especially in t-ball. I'd love to. <laughs> I feel like I could, I could stand out there. So here's the thing, and I kind of want you to see where I'm going with this. I think too often we can rest too easily in the fact that be, because we have God, we're good, and that we don't need anything else. Now, I said I want you to hear me out on this because, yes, because you have God, you don't need anything else. That is true. God is more than enough for you. But here's the thing. Sometimes I think we can look back and say, I've got God. That's all I need. But here's the catch, folks. We always need more God. We always need more of Him. We always need to walk more with Him. Believing in the grace of God saves you. Yes, period. Mark it down. Okay, Paul has said that repeatedly. You are saved by the grace of God through your faith, period. But here's the catch. All of that belief, that grace, that salvation that you get, that should all automatically spur you and turn you into following him and becoming more like him. That's why when when they asked Peter, uh, how how do we get saved? Repent and be baptized. Yes, believe in Christ, that'll that'll save you. You automatically go repent and be baptized. Turn away from what you were doing and follow Jesus. That's why Jesus went to the disciples one by one, follow me, and they dropped everything and they followed him. They turned away from the life that they had and they followed him. See, here's the thing I want you to understand, folks. Just simply becoming saved, I don't want to say it's not good enough, but we need to do more. Not so that you can continue to get saved, but so you can continue to become more like Jesus. I often tell folks, I heard this from a a pastor before, and I, I like to repeat this to other people, that first step you make out of the baptistry, that's your first step on your walk with Jesus. It should never be your last it should never be the, the, the final step that you take. You should continue to walk with him. Why? Because the more you walk with him, the more you become like him. Uh, I'm, I'm, 
got a little bit of a reflective personality at times. I can have a, a, a strong personality, yes, but I notice when I'm around certain people, I become a little bit more like them. And I want to become more like Jesus. So how do I do that? I try to be around him a lot more. I try to get closer to him. I try to walk with him more and more. And here's why this is important, especially for me, and I'm probably not the only one, because at the root of all sin is the desire to be in control. Yeah, you can say at the root of all sin maybe is greed or pride, but where do those come from? The desire to be in control. Timothy Keller is a, a pastor in New York. He's written a ton of amazing books. But he said this, the underlying motive of sin is to play God. The underlying motive of sin is to play God. And, and, and here's where this can become dangerous for us because we can be kind of tempted to drift towards more and more control of our own lives and more and more control of the world around us. And God knows this. That's why the law pulls us away from control and causes us to give up more. That's why when Christ says, follow me, he says, let go of that stuff you thought you wanted to do and come walk with me. That's why the law can seem restrictive and oppressive at times, because God knows that if we've got just the full run of things, we're going to be selfish. We're going to hold on to control. We're not going to give it up. Go all the way back to Genesis. What was the very first sin? Adam and Eve in the garden. The sin wasn't just that they didn't listen and they ate the fruit. The sin was what lied or what, what, what caused them to eat that fruit. Go, go back to it, Genesis chapter 3. God's told them, don't eat this, this one particular fruit, this one particular tree. Why? Was it because, you know what, this, is, this tastes so good, you're not going to like the others? No. This is one that, I mean, this is the pick of the, pick of the, the produce section down at Freddy's. He tells them, don't eat this or you're going to die. And the serpent comes up, and he's like, hey, you should eat that fruit up there. It looks pretty good. And he's like, no, if we eat that, we're going to die. In Genesis 3, verse 4, the serpent says, you will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat the fruit of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God. That's the key part there. That's where he got him. Go ahead and eat this, because you're going to become like God. Let's be, let's be honest and un, unchristian for just a second here. If someone said you could be like God, that's going to at least get your attention, right? Someone came up and said, I've got this, I, I could give you this, and, and you are going to become like God. You're like, oh, okay, keep talking. <laughs> you may not go along with it, but they've got your attention. He got Eve's attention here. And what he got her on is the same thing that we can get ourselves on all the time here. The desire to be in control. If you know good and evil, if you know everything that there is to know, that's control. That's the desire to lead your own life. And what Paul is saying in this is that, yes, the law may seem oppressive, but that's, there's a reason why. There's a reason why we're called to follow certain rules, because without them, we're going to drift more in this direction. We're going to drift more to trying to be in control of our situation around us. The law is not our problem. Sin is. See, I think about it like this. The law is kind of like an x-ray machine. 
The x-ray machine doesn't break your arm, but it shows you that your arm is broken. And it shows you how badly your arm is broken. The law doesn't mess my life up, but it shows me how messed up my life is. It shows me uh, what, what I need to fix. And here's kind of the thing, when I, I make the law my problem, when I, when I claim that the law has caused me to sin and the law has broken me, I am making God my enemy. And when I make God my enemy, my natural reaction is to be rebellious. My natural reaction is to push away. But when I don't paint God in that corner, when, when I don't paint God as my enemy who tells me, no, don't do this or no, don't do that, and instead when I paint God as the God who gives me second chances and third chances and fourth chances and more than I will ever possibly deserve, then suddenly I start to see him for who he really is. He's not somebody who just wants to sit up there and bark out rules to me and clap when I get them right and, and stare at me when I get them wrong. He is somebody who loves me, who wants me to be in a relationship with him, who wants me to move closer to him. And yes, we talk all the time. I hear people say, well, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. How many relationships do you know that don't have boundaries in effect? Healthy relationships, let me rephrase that. They don't have boundaries in effect and say, hey, you, you can't do that over there and still be in a relationship with me. You can't just go do whatever you want and, 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 and still be friends with me. God wants you to come closer to him and become more like him. And here's kind of where this leads to, church. When the law shows us how broken we are, when the law shows us how messed up we are, our, our natural reaction shouldn't be to shake our fist at God and go, man, look what your law did to me. Our natural reaction should be like that of the prophet Isaiah when he fell on his face seeing God and said, woe to me, for I am ruined. That's Paul's reaction. Look back in verse 24. What is it he says? What a wretched man I am. What a wretched man I am. And here's the key part. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Not what. Not what can I do. Not what will you send. Who? It's a person. Who will come rescue me? Verse 25, he says, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. And here's where this gets really good. Because Paul is going to shift now. And he flips over into what we call chapter 8. Remember when he wrote this? He just wrote this all as one big long letter. We came back in later and put a chapter in verses because it was easy for us to understand that way. But he's going to shift and he's going to tell us now how we live. And here's kind of the theme going to, to, to chapter 8. He says the Spirit of God is the power by which we live. Yes, the law is important, but the Spirit is importanter seeing if anybody's still paying attention out there. <laughs> now, if it was an okeyism, it would be more importanter. <laughs> chapter 8 of Romans is one of the most powerful chapters in the Bible because he just kind of brings this all to a head in a good way. Look how he starts off. Everything he's just said, look how he starts off chapter 8. Therefore, because of all of this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that everything about chapter 6 and everything about chapter 7, everything about the law does not lead me to beat you over the head with it. It leads me to show you who Jesus is and how you can become more like him. See, one of the worst, I think, conclusions that we can make in the church, a lot of people outside the church make this, but one of the worst conclusions that we can make is that judgment in and of itself is a bad thing. Judgment in and of itself is not a bad thing if it's used to guide us to what's being right. If it's being used as a weapon, yes, it is, because that's condemnation. But if it's using, being used to steer us, that's what the law was supposed to be there for, to guide our walk, to protect our walk. And that's where he's guiding us through this. Everything that he has just said here tells us there is no condemnation in Jesus. In other words, Jesus will show you your sin, and then he will move you from it into life with him. It's like he said with the, the woman that was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He didn't say, I forgive you, go ahead and go do whatever. No, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. It's, it's, it's both of these together here. And I, my, my, my prayer and my hope is that this verse in Romans 8, a verse that probably a lot of you have memorized, probably a lot of you memorized in Sunday school once upon a time, never just becomes a ho-hum verse for you. Never just becomes, you know, I learned that once upon a time, that was, that's a great verse. But a verse that you hold on to saying there is no condemnation in Jesus. If he exposes your sin, it's not to beat you up with it. It is to guide you to closer to him. That is what it is like to follow the spirit of Jesus. N.T. Wright is a, a, a British theologian. He had this to say kind of in regards to Romans 8. He said, the spirit of God is able to do what the law of God could not do. The law of God could not give us moral life in the present and the resurrected life, uh, could not give us the resurrected life in the future. The law shows us the way to go, but the Spirit guides us from there. The Spirit, if we follow Him, leads us into this new life with God. I'd say it this way, nothing about what you died to defines what you now live in. Nothing about what you died to, nothing about what you gave up defines who you are in Christ now. And if you live, folks, if, if you live in Jesus, if you've accepted him, if you've made him the Lord of your life, you are only defined by his spirit that dwells in you and leads you and guides you if you follow it. But here's the thing too, folks, that, that doesn't mean we're free from all the rules. It doesn't mean that. Twice in chapter 6, Paul asks the rhetorical question, well, since we have the grace of God, are we just free to keep on sinning? And both times he answers the rhetorical question emphatically, by no means. I always get a kick out of reading this because of, of my Bible college days. Uh, Jennifer and I had the same professor. And in the Greek, the phrase there is meganoita, by no means. And Dr. Boland, every time he would read that, he would, he, he was, Dr. Boland's a, a power lifter. So, I mean, imagine me, but like this, you know, legs about this big around. And so he kinda, his arms kind of hang out anyway because he just isn't capable of holding them at his sides like I am because he's got actual muscles here to hold them out. But he says this every time, and he squats and he, he grunts in this big, deep voice, are we free to keep on sinning? Meganoita! And so I always read that by no means now, like it's just naturally in bold print in my Bible. 
Are we free to keep on sinning? By no means are we free to keep on sinning. So here's why following these rules are important. Because when you commit to following Jesus, you are committing to becoming righteous. That's what that means. We, we kind of give the tagline to this series of righteousness for the unrighteous. Why? Because naturally, we are unrighteous. But God's plan is to give us the opportunity to become righteous. You could also say it this way. The theme of Romans is this. You, you can ask the question, how does a just and holy God look at an unjust and holy me and count me as equal to Jesus? Because he does. So How? How? I know what I've done. I know what's in my heart and my life. How could he look at all that, a just and holy God, and count me as equal to Jesus? Being righteous means that we are set apart. We are making the commitment to follow him, doing what he did, following what he told us to do. The fancy theological word for this is sanctification. You move from salvation, being saved, to sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And obeying the Spirit moves you beyond just sanctification. Because by following the Spirit, by, by, by fully obeying Him, by fully becoming more like one with Jesus, you move from salvation to sanctification to glorification. That's living in the eternity of Jesus. That's living in the resurrection of Jesus here. Church, hear me out on this. The work of the Spirit is not a luxury, it's a necessity. We need to follow what he commands us to do. We need to follow where he leads us. That's why just being saved, being, uh, accepting that salvation and, and saying, I'm good to go, that's why I say, it's not good enough. Does it save you? Sure. But then what do you do with it? James, the brother of Jesus, later on, uh, wrote, wrote these famous words in chapter 2 of his letter. He said, faith apart from works is dead. What good is it for the kingdom of God if your salvation doesn't lead to obedience, that doesn't lead to action, that doesn't lead to you sharing in the work with Jesus? Obedience of the Spirit, it is not burdensome, it's not oppressive, it's not, man, follow all these rules. Make God happy. It's not a matter of, man, I I don't want God to get mad at me. It's it's more of a matter of, I want to do this so I can show people what God has done in me. I want to show people the change that God has made in my life. Condemnation is gone. Salvation is there. Sanctification is happening. Glorification is coming. That's your goal. Becoming more and more like Him. And you can only work toward that by accepting the call to become more like Jesus. That's what it boils down to. Becoming more like him, submitting to his lordship, making him the lord of your life, telling him, I don't want to be in control anymore. I want you to be in control of my life. Let's pray. Father, we are, we're so thankful for Jesus. God, we are thankful, Lord, that, that There are times he calls us to do things, God, and you call us to do things, and and it seems like, it seems hard. It seems not like it's not fair. And God, in those moments, I would just ask that you give us the reminder in our hearts, 
that you love us and that you died for us so that you could save us. God, I pray today that, that if hearts are being pulled, if hearts are being touched and hearts are being tugged, Lord, you would, you would lead us closer to you. You would whisper to our hearts, it's okay to let go, you can trust me. It's okay to let go, I'm here for you. God, we, we, we love you. And we know that becoming more like you is a lifelong commitment. It's not easy. It does require hard work. But it's also very, very rewarding. So God, I pray today for hearts, for minds, for souls. God, that you would bring us closer to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.